Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. That's right. This is Tyler. You know where you are. Welcome again for another week. And we're going to jump right in where we left off last week. This is part two. And we're talking about the top 23 questions that, well, let's just be honest, folks. We never ask them. We should be. I shouldn't say we. There was a time I didn't ask them. But over the time, over the last 20 years, I've been doing this a long time. I've learned a lot of things. One thing I've learned is if I want to get to motivate, I want to get sellers that are motivated. I want to save myself the aggravation of jumping through a bunch of hoops, pissing off a seller because they're not motivated and I'm making a low ball offer to them. Then the, the best way I can do that, the easiest way I can avoid the drama is to make sure that I'm dealing with motivated sellers. And for that, I need to know that I'm, that I'm focusing on a problem. And for that, there needs to be a problem. In other words, when I ask some of these questions, and I say, you know, why are you selling? Well, because the market's hot and I'm waiting for some dumb idiot to come pay me top dollar for this property. That's probably not a seller that I want to waste my time making an offer to, do I? Because chances are they're not going to give me any sort of a deal. They've got no compelling need to give me a deal. They've got no reason to real really sell except for top dollar. And I find it interesting. And I sold, we sold a lot of property ourselves of our own portfolio in the last year or so. Um, and that's because we did the make me move thing. We went out there and said, hey, let's sell some of the stuff off and let's see if they'll just give us ridiculous money. And they did. We sold a lot of properties that way. We sold some other properties at you know regular prices, so to speak, to recapitalize so we could deploy capital in other markets and other things. But what we found is that people don't ask very many questions. And that means that they're making offers only based on price. I found that when you only make offers based on price, a lot of folks wind up getting disappointed. So let's get around that. And to be able to come up with a price that makes sense, an offer that makes sense, and to sit down and have an intelligent conversation with the seller, you got to know kind of where your basis is. You need to know where your expenses are. So the first question that we're going to kick off this episode with is, who pays the utilities? And by utilities, I mean water, sewer, the trash bill, picking up the garbage, um, the electric bill, who pays that? Now, you can't sit there and just assume that, well, of course the tenants pay the electric and in the water that's what goes on in one property may not go on on the others down here in florida and frankly of that for that matter up in memphis tennessee what we've discovered is that the water sewer and garbage are paid by the landlord unless it's a single family dwelling if it's multifamily, the landlord almost always pays that and you may say well I, that's fine but i don't pay electric well if you've got a bigger apartment building you very well may pay electric our places up in tennessee that we had the electric bill there was a pretty healthy electric bill for the common areas we've got all these hallways and we've got a laundry room and and washers and dryers and things like that that all generate electricity there's a street light leasing that we had to lease street lights to have the place lit up and we had exterior lighting all those things are powered by a separate account now i know some of you are saying well don't worry i'll stick it on apartment too well I hope that you're giving apartment two some sort of a break on the rent. If you're doing that, you're not one of those bottom feeder landlords. that's just out there knocking people's heads off um, with the taking, the taking advantage of them by whacking them with the power bill. That's really not their responsibility. I hope that, that you're not doing that. Maybe you are. And if you are, well, I guess karma will get you. But anyway, let's figure out who is responsible for these things. Make sure the buildings have individual meters or the units actually have individual meters if it's multifamily. And this is kind of a easy way. So there's a little ninja secret for you, a little gold nugget. If you're driving for dollars and you're trying to figure out how many doors a property has, usually on one or two sides of the building is where all the meters are. 
if you can poke around the corner and see if there's five meters, chances are that's usually, if it's a larger building, when I say larger, I mean if it's, a, if it's commercial, if it's over four units, and you see six meters, that'll usually tell you that's probably a five-unit property because there's one for the common areas and four for the individual units. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. It depends on construction, depends on the area where you're at. Like I said, my larger buildings, those properties all had a meter for the common areas and then a meter for every individual unit. Smaller properties, duplexes, four, triplexes, fourplexes, places like that, usually there's one meter per apartment and there is no extra meter for the common areas because, to be honest with you, there's not a whole lot of common areas to begin with. But you need to make sure who's paying the bill. And you might be thinking of look, using this property as a short-term rental. A lot of folks go, well, I don't care how much the electric is. Well, you're going to care if you ever decide to short-term rental these places because if you use them as a short-term rental, and by that I mean like an Airbnb or a Verbo or something like that, that power bill becomes your responsibility as the host. So you're going to kind of want to know what the power bill is. And if you're buying a building that's got one-bedroom apartments and the power bill is 300 bucks a month, let me tell you, you want to talk about a cash flow killer, that could be a cash flow killer. Maybe they've got window shakers. Or maybe they've got a 1960s vintage um, central air, air conditioning system they've been hodgepodging together for the last 30, 40 years. Who knows? That's why we ask these questions, right? Next one I want to know, and this is an important one, is what's the age of the roof? Because here I'm here to tell you, unless you're buying a condo that's not on the top floor, and even if it wasn't the top floor, it wouldn't matter, you're going to wind up putting a roof on these properties at some point. Knowing how much that will cost, number one, is a great start, but more importantly, when was the last time the roof was replaced? And if the answer is anything over 15 years, if and you're in the south, I can tell you right now, it probably needs to be replaced again. If there's a tree hanging over the roof, probably a good chance that it's going to be replaced again. We were just recently looking at a little uh, vacation rental property, a uh, three-unit in Florida, that uh, during Hurricane Irma, a tree went through the roof. And But don't worry, the it was replaced, it was, or I'm sorry, repaired. There was a repair done by the handyman. Well, guess what? That dog doesn't hunt. We're going to have to get a contractor in there, a roofing contractor. They're going to have to look at the roof structure, make sure the trusses are in good shape. We don't want somebody that's, you know, use balsa wood to patch it back together where the part where the shingles installed properly. Are they structurally sound? Are they watertight? These are all questions that we're going to want to know. And these are things that we need to know up front when we're buying this property so that we don't get into under contract on this thing and find out that, well, first of all, we can't insure it because it won't pass a four-point inspection. Four-point inspection, guys, is something that you need when you buy a property. The insurance company is going to want some sort of an inspection usually done on the the four major systems, your HVAC, uh, electric, water, and roof to make sure the property is in decent shape so that the risk for the insurance company is diminished. So knowing the age of the roof is very important. But the second piece of that is... Um, was it replaced with a permit? And if the answer is, I don't know, then we're going to have to look in the county building records or the, maybe the city building records, depending on where you are. And maybe in some cases, even the state building records. Who knows? But you're going to find out whoever issues permits, construction permits for that area. And because the seller, chances are they haven't used the permit. And if they did use a permit, they may not even know because maybe the roofer pulled a permit and they just weren't privy to that information. Maybe they forgot, whatever. But you're going to want to verify that. And you can usually do that online in most cases, unless it's a small town. But either way, call the, the clerk of the circuit court or the building department. Ask them who, what department issues permits. The name of what that department is will be different based on municipality. So you're going to want to pick up the phone, find out who issues building permits, and then run, have them run the address and see what permits. And while you're on the phone with them, ask them what other permits have been pulled. 
If the answer is none and this property was just renovated, then that should be a red flag. That means somebody went in there and did work without a permit, which to me would make me question the quality. Now, if it's just paint and carpet, then usually in most places you don't need a permit to do paint and carpet. But if the roof was just replaced or a fence was just installed or maybe a room addition was done, then these are things that should have had a permit. If there was an electrical service upgrade, boy, there's a huge red flag. There should definitely be a permit for an electrical service upgrade. I don't care if it was a licensed electrician that did the work. He was doing it on Sunday, which means he was not working in the scope of his license, which means his insurance, his own insurance, his liability insurance, will not cover him when the event that your property burns to the ground and your insurance company says, pack sand because this was not done properly and it wasn't properly inspected, you wouldn't want to have to get my insurance adjuster out there or something silly like this that could be taken care of before you even buy the property. So what do you do when you find this situation where roof or something was done or electrical something done without a permit? Well, you can do what they call, and it's, it's a painful process sometimes, but you can do what they call a permit after the fact, which means they're going to open a permit, you're going to kind of have to tattle, and they're going to get a contractor out there to inspect it. And if it's a big, if it's something behind walls, well, <laughs> that's where for me it becomes a, a red flag. If if it's electrical, or maybe it's a plumbing thing, and and they have it and they can't inspect it without opening up the walls, then I'm probably just going to go ahead and pass on the property. I wouldn't want to put a seller through that. I don't want to put my own team through that. So I've walked away from plenty of deals for that reason. Things done without a permit that I can't go in and permit after the fact that could just turn into a nightmare for me. So think about that. Has the property ever been, next one's going to be, has the property ever been flooded or in a fire? And why you need to know this is, again, back to repairs, right? If it was in a fire, that's probably had extensive water damage. Who did that work? And the last thing I'm going to leave you with is, did the seller fill out a, a seller disclosure? And this is usually with listed properties, properties that are listed by an agent or on the MLS. They're usually in a lot of municipalities required to fill out some sort of a seller disclosure. And what that looks like, it's a lengthy form where the seller discloses any material defects with the property and they know what's wrong with the property. Number one, if you are the syndicator, you're sponsoring a deal and maybe you're dealing with, you've raised money from some partners and you've got other people involved in the deal. This is a cover your ass thing for you. This is something that you ask for and insist. And frankly, Google it, seller disclosure or a seller disclosure form, and maybe make your own and have these sellers fill this stuff out. If they've ever dealt with a realtor, they're used to seeing the form. And frankly, it's a great way. You'd be surprised. People will actually be honest and rat on themselves as they should, because it's called doing good business. Have them sign a seller disclosure. And commonly, guys, I'll tell you, especially realtors pull this game. Well, the seller never occupied the premises, so they can't fill one out. Really, they've never paid a repair bill. They've never paid a water bill. They they really have no idea what's going on with this property. They've been completely locked in a room in the dark with blinders on, and they don't know anything about this property at all, period. They bought it yesterday, and they didn't do any, they bought it without due diligence. If Unless any of that's true, then they can fill out a seller disclosure. And at the end, if something goes wrong, you buy this property, find out they did not disclose something that they reasonably should have known, and you've got them with a signed seller disclosure, your attorney is going to be really happy with you because that makes his job easy. If you ever had to sue or, God forbid, anything like that to recover damages, when you can catch them with having evidence of something like this where they intentionally did not disclose something they knew was there, it's going to increase the liability for the seller putting you in a better position. So keep that in mind. Guys, I hope you're finding these shorter episodes beneficial. Maybe you can consume the content faster and get through it. 
I'm curious what you think. I want to know what your thoughts are on it. Is is this what you want to, the way you like it? A lot of you have reached out and said, you think it's awesome. You think it's great because you, you don't want to sit through a 45-minute episode if you don't have to. Understand this, that there are topics that I'm going to cover that are simply going to take more time because you know me well enough to know that I don't want to leave cards on the table. I want to make sure that you're given everything that you need. Again, we've hit four of the 23 questions that you absolutely must be asking. The last episode, we hit three of those. So of that, we've got seven of those knocked down. We still got lots more questions coming up that you need to ask. Make sure you tune in next week to get the answers to that. Again, if you heard me last week, you heard me talk about Mailbox Money Coaching. If you're interested, drop us a line and we'll catch up with you next time. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to CashflowGuys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas. So you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.